0: Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, if you are new, I am one of the pastors here. Uh, you can grab a Bible in the back if you don't own one. You can borrow one if you forgot one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you're on a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called YouVersion. You click on live in that. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with this morning. We don't ask you to shut it off. You can actually just go YouVersion. Turn it on silent, but you know, just leave it on and go with all of it. Stanley, in the reading of God's word. We will get started here. This is Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, and it says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who understand what you have done in the course of eternity and what you continue to do, that all things have been sifted through your hands and we can trust you for all things. Have us be a a body of children who love their father in a way that shows complete and ultimate trust. Amen. Have a seat. So we're in our series, this is called The Stupid Summer, this is week 11, this is all about people who call themselves Christians, believe a bunch of stupid things, because we all believe stupid things, maybe uh, someone told you something, or something just felt right, but it's not found in the scriptures, and then you start telling all, all your friends about all these crazy things you believe. So this, this sermon series is really good, because if you're not a Christian, it's going to help you to understand all the crazy things Christians say, if they're not true, and then if you are a believer, it will help you know if you're a nut job. Originally, we were going to do 10 weeks on the stupid summer. We expanded it to 13 because we are that dumb. So how it works. Uh, sometimes we believe things simply because of the source. Somebody we trust tells us something. Like you get forwarded an email from, from one of your friends that's all about some guy in Nigeria who wants to give you $10,000. If you just give him $1,000 on the front end and, oh, my friend sent it to me. I should believe that. Or, or, hey, I got this forward and Bill Gates is going to give me $1,000 every 10 people I forward this email to. It doesn't happen. It has never happened. Bill Gates is not going to do it. I can get free Disneyland tickets if I forward this to 20 people. Well, if you really love Jesus, you'll forward this to everybody in your address book. Stop forwarding me emails. (laughs) I'm going to cut down on all of you this morning. Now, sometimes we just send something out because someone sends us something out and we trust that person. Here's something you need to understand. Everybody can be wrong except God. Except God. That's why we trust God and His Word. And today we're going to cover a subject that for some reason everybody wants to fight me on and I have no idea why everybody wants to fight me on it. And this is the idea of luck and chance or that God brings good luck. Now, at one point in my life, I was five, six, eight, I just know it wasn't last week because I know I didn't do this last week, but I had this lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, it was, I probably had a few growing up, but this one was bright pink. And I have no idea why people think it's awesome to give a little boy a bright pink rabbit's foot. It just, it just doesn't go. And you never really think about how unnatural it is, right? A bright pink or bright neon yellow or bright green rabbit's foot. I mean, wouldn't all the predators be like, that's the one I'm eating, it can't hide. And maybe that's why you get the rabbit's feet because they're bright pink and they can't hide and you just see where they're at and they can go and get them and give you the rabbit's feet. Now, anyway, at the, at the risk of sounding redundant because I do say this a lot, I believe the world's only begin to see God as he really is when his people truly begin to live for him. But even as a people who live for him, we still seem to get bound up in superstition and luck and chance. It's why people buy lucky rabbit's feet that are electric, pink, and they carry it around in their pocket. Like a dyed animal appendage in your pocket is anything other than just creepy i mean i mean seriously it didn't do the rabbit any good and he's got four feet <laughs> now three little ladies rabbitry they try to give a background on how a rabbit foot actually becomes lucky this is what they say it must be the rear left foot of the rabbit the rabbit must be shot or captured in a cemetery the rabbit the rabbit has to be shot on or during a full or a new moon and the shooter had to be cross-eyed Right, so you have questions, right? So, so why the left foot? Why a cemetery? Because that then goes back to creepy again. Why a full moon? And most importantly is who's giving the cross-eyed guy a gun and telling him to go hunting? He's like, shh, uh, I'm hunting rabbits, you know. Now, by this criteria, you went and bought a lucky rabbit's foot. You had no way to tell if it was actually lucky. But if you did get one, then after you purchase it, you have to then activate the luck. Because apparently rabbits' feet are like Microsoft products, and you got to get an activation code to make them work. So you activate the luck by rubbing the rabbit's foot, which I can understand that because we all love a good foot rub. It might tickle at the, at the outset, but in the end it's like, oh, that is sweet. Right? So so, so I get that. And then you got to carry around in your back left pocket because once you start with a superstition, it just gets worse and worse and worse until you go into superstition overload. I think there's a better word for luck and chance. I think that is the word superstition. Uh, And let me just give you a very personal example of of how this actually works and how we kind of get caught up in these. This is my personal example. A few years ago, uh, I was going to teach this class to a bunch of volunteers on how to teach high school students, you know, the gospel and, and the best way to do that. On this way to this class, one of my friends had just opened a coffee shop, and I walked in, and it was cold, so they gave me some chai tea. I had never had chai tea before. Chai tea is awesome. If you've never had it, you should try it. Not the kind that you got to take in and steep like a bag. That's just nasty. The kind that's like ninety percent sugar. That—that's the kind I'm talking about, right? It's just, and then you, then you like do it like a whole milk, and you walk out and you're like, oh, you know, that's that's the chai tea I'm talking about. It's it's good. It's tasty. It's wonderful. Just what you need on a cold October night to to warm you up. Now, not to boast, but when I taught this class, I was awesome. Okay I mean I'm sipping my chai tea I'm expanding on how to make kids connect with Jesus and not just their hormones it was amazing and so the very next week I got to teach another class different subject but I stopped and got some more chai tea went to the class and it was amazing again just phenomenal the next week I had to teach another class so I go and I forget my chai tea I don't go pick it up I go to the class and you know what happened it was awful it was just, it was terrible. I mean, I couldn't make one thought connect to the other. I couldn't, all the markers that you had for the whiteboard, like some played whack-a-mole with them, and they're all just just smushed in there. Uh, I, it's like all my notes scatter across the floor. No one proofread them, so everybody sees how bad I actually type. It was terrible. I go home, hanging in my head in shame, and the very next morning I was supposed to speak at this prayer breakfast that the mayor was going to be at. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? I get up the next morning, start driving to the prayer breakfast, and you know what I do? I stop and I buy some chai tea. And you know what? I was awesome. <laughs> I mean, seriously, so much so that, that Larry, the old mayor of Santa Maria, uh, had this Triumph car, and he would order some car parts for my brother periodically. And he's like, hey, Carlberg, oh, uh, is, is your brother? And he asked my brother, oh, five years ago. He, I mean, five years later, he's still talking about it. I'm like, it was a chai tea, apparently. I, I don't know what it was. So, And, and so that this weird chain of events of having tea with me, not having tea, having tea again, made me start to trust in chai tea and not the God who made the chai tea when it comes to crunch situations. I mean, isn't it strange that someone who calls themselves a pastor who tries, and I emphasize the word tries in the midst of that, you know, tries try to serve as shepherd uh, for God over people, starts to trust in tea rather than an all-powerful God who made that tea. I mean, we all have superstitions. We all have them. Even if we don't call them by that name. Michael Phelps, when he goes to swim, you'll see him. He'll flap his big old monkey arms three times. Every time he does it, he flaps them three times. That, that's his ritual. Michael Jordan wore his North Carolina shorts under his Bulls uniform for every single game. Tiger Woods believes the color red is a lucky charm. And so he usually re- wears red on Sundays. Uh, he was wearing red when he won the Masters Tournament in 1997, the first time. That belief came from his mom, who adheres very strongly to astrology. Uh, one quarter of Americans have a lucky number. 27% of 18- to 24-year-olds carry around a lucky charm, whether it is a coin or a rock or chai tea, w- w- whatever it is. More men than women have a lucky shirt. I used to have this shirt. It was black, and I wore it so much it turned gray and had holes in it, but it was still my, my favorite lucky shirt. It was awesome. I said to my wife, where's my black shirt? She goes, it's not black, it's gray, it's got holes in it. I said, where's my gray shirt with holes in it? Because, you know, it's. most of us fail to realize that superstitions and luck and chance, they're all things that are not real and simply keep us in bondage to miss. I mean, you have baseball players. They walk into the plate, I'm going to tap the plate ten times, this foot, that foot, turn around, do this. Or they get on a hitting streak and like, I'm not going to change these underwear. These underwear must be doing it or these socks or whatever. And they don't, I mean, musicians, musicians, I got to use the same type of strings, drink the same type of water or drink the same amount of... Booze We probably go on stage, and that's, that's where we're going to make it work. Or pastors who go around and have to buy chai tea. Everybody is just in to their own sort of superstition. Luck and superstition are ways to believe that God may not actually be in charge of everything. So we find objects that are going to give us a favorable result rather than trusting God who has sifted all things through his hands. When we don't understand God, his provision, we become enslaved by ourselves and our own fragile faith. So if you in ancient cultures, how this would work is you would go up and, and you would sacrifice to your God on an altar. And then if you had a really good harvest, you know what you would do? You would give him more. Oh, this is great. Oh, here, here's some more, God. This is wonderful. Now, if you had a bad harvest, maybe uh, you didn't get enough rain, that the locust came through and ate everything. You know what you would do? You would give more. Because you always just have to give more. This went on and on and on and on until people started human sacrifices. Then it went on past that and started giving child sacrifices because you know what better sacrifice can you give than than a child? And it's all based on luck and superstition. The God of the scriptures is not a silent God who sits up on his throne expecting you to figure him out and, you know, and all the things that you need to manipulate him to do what you want. He is a God who has revealed himself in the person of Christ. The God of the scriptures is a God who's concerned about his people and the best way for them to live. So if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I'm going to show you a story about how everyone is prone to forget who God really is. And this whole thing starts out in First Samuel four, and telling you that this is how Samuel becomes the prophet over Israel. This is the circumstances that led to this. First Samuel four, verse one. Partway through starts like this. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So Israel, again, is out fighting their great enemy, the Philistines. If you've ever heard about anything in the scriptures about Israel, they're always somehow in some way fighting the Philistines. Now, what they do is they encamp at a place called Ebenezer. Ebenezer uh, stands for like a stone of remembrance, a place where God had done some great deed at some point. And so they set up this great monument that said, God is great, God is good, He has saved us, He is wonderful. And it's in this very place where they encamp that they're going to forget who God really is. Now, the Philistines, on the other side of this, they they were miles and miles ahead, militarily, technologically, above the Israelites. Actually, in 1 Samuel 13, 19 and 20, it says, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords and spears. So they wouldn't share this technology, so Israel always had to go to the Philistines to get some metallurgy done. And the Philistines would charge them exorbitant prices, because in the end, they really just wanted to enslave them and get them out of Israel. the, The Philistines wanted the Israelite Area. Now, the Israelites want the Philistines out of Palestine, and so the fight breaks out. It's one just long succession of fights that just go on and on. This is not the first fight. It's not going to be the last fight. Both sides expect to win because both sides have got on their side. It really sounds nothing like today at all. Because scripture, man, it's just, it's not even relevant, right? Okay, anyway, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So both sides believe they're right, they both array in this ready for the fight, and they both believe their cause is just, and the Israelites, who actually do serve a real and a living God, lose. And the question is, Why? And that's the same question that the Israelites want to know. Verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Yeah, the Philistines kicked our butt, but God, He is sovereign. He is in control. He can intervene if He chooses. Why did He let us fail? And this is what kind of the whole story of 1 Samuel 4 is about. Uh, Their reason that they come to is that God can't actually see what's going on. See, they've begun to be influenced by all the cultures around them who serve blind and deaf gods who can't lift a finger to help because they're not real. The Israelites are forgetting they serve a real and a true God who is free and can do whatever he wants and many times lets you and I go through some very hard things in our lives that we don't understand for his greater glory and our greater good. They forget just like we do. They go searching for some reassurance, just like us, and they find a lucky rabbit's foot, just like us. Verse 3, they say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies, that it May come among us that it may save us. You hear the words that they're using? The Israelites say, God isn't seeing what's going on here. We've got to go get him. We've got to rub him, say the magic words, drink his chai tea, he's going to show up and then God will fight for us. we got to go get God in the box and bring him out here so we can see what's going on. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? Yes it's a it 's it's, it's happened somehow the Israelites believe just like us, that after all the times that God has shown up, that God has been faithful, that God has spoken to them, that somehow He is not actually always present with them, that He has to be brought to where they are, not understanding that if God wasn 't there, there wouldn 't actually even be there. Whatever, okay. You know. They have this notion that God, who heard their cry in Egypt, that brings them out of slavery, that parts a sea, that stops the sun in the sky, that he has to be carried in a box to where they are to see their plight. And you may wonder, where do the Israelites even get this idea for this box that they believe God was stuck in? Is God's box. Well, the Ark of the Covenant, that's what it's called, was actually laid out and designed by God himself. This is how it works. After God saves the Israelites from slavery, there are lonely wandering people in the desert. So God does something very astonishing. He says that He is going to be with His people. He is going to travel with His people. The God of the universe, who is confined by no one and no thing, is going to travel in a mundane way with His people. He says, since you are living in tents, how about you build me a tent and I, my presence is going to inhabit that tent. You can worship me and seek guidance and live in the surety of knowing that I see and know everything that's going on with My presence will stay in this tent. This tent was called a tabernacle. If you go to John chapter 1, what's amazing is that when Jesus comes, it says, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. John is using very specific language on who Jesus was. Now, the first thing, when God's going to have them make this tabernacle, he doesn't first have them make a tent. He has them build a box that is called the Ark. That what the Ark is going to do is it's going to house these tablets that God gives Moses, these Ten Commandments. You've all probably heard about those at some point, right? Okay, the Ten Commandments are going to be housed in this, the terms of the covenant. This is like a marriage covenant, that God is a husband, and Israel is like a bride, and God's going to care for them as such, the terms of their covenant, their relationship together. And so God has them make this ark first because it's the terms of the covenant that will give meaning to their entire tabernacle. Now the ark, it's a rectangular box, is overlaid with gold molding, has four rings to carry it around. A lot of artists have done a lot of you know pictures of this, so here's one right here. That's what they think. Some guy thinks it looks like. And but quite honestly, you know who actually came up with the best representation of probably what the ark looks like based on the, the dimensions in the scriptures? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Bam, right there, Steven Spielberg, you can buy this. this is actually on sale this is This is a scaled replica. You and your buddies, three of them, could walk around, carrying the ark around don 't touch it, you know you walk around, carrying the ark, be all crazy Christian, like weirdo, whatever. you know now you have to understand the ark itself wasn 't sacred. it was made sacred by the virtue of what it carried. it carried the terms of the covenant. Now the ark also had a lid, uh like guys like Tupperware needs a lid to sell in the freshness or whatever, but the cover for the ark was called a capret. Now this is translated for you and I as mercy seat or atonement seat. It's a Hebrew word translated into Greek and it means to make expiation. Now, God tells Moses that it is above this cavern, above this mercy seat. That's the thing where the two angels were on top. And it's above that that he's going to meet and speak with and impart wisdom concerning the Israelite people. The imagery is supposed to be that God is a king and he has a throne and a footstool and God is speaking as Israel's king. But God never resided in the ark, in the box. God would speak from above the ark of the covenant as if it was his footstool. He never used the ark like a snail uses a shell. Okay, So you go back in 1 Samuel, the Israelites, they lose perspective on this. They start to treat the ark like a rabbit's foot. They believe they have to go get the ark and bring God in the box to the battle so that he can see what's going on and he will fight for them. 1 Samuel 4, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now Eli is the high priest of Israel at this point. His sons off, and Phineas are knuckleheads. That people look at them because they're Eli's sons, and they're thinking, "Wow, well they've got to be really spiritual because hey, they're Eli's sons." They're not. They're knuckleheads, which tells you like sometimes churches today it's like a pastor is like, "I'm going to give this church to my son when I retire." That's not how it works. It is It is not birth. It is new birth. It is calling. It is God doing things in our lives. And these couple kids, they are just knuckleheads. They go along with the Israelites who have turned the ark of God into an idol, a good luck charm. But what God's going to do through the next few verses is show them he will not be their chitee. He is not going to be that for him. And, and for the sake of the writer, I hope you can see some of the humor that begins to take place in what happens next. The Israelites get very excited that the Ark of the Lord has shown up. They begin to celebrate. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. The God in the box is here. Boom. Do, 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 do. Bang. I'm Charlie in the box. Okay. Now the Philistines. They're wondering, why are the Israelites so excited? We just killed 4,000 of them. Why are they excited? Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the of the Lord has come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a god has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us in the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, the Philistines, you would expect them to respond this way because they serve superstitious nonsense. They get frightened of all of this. They, they're they like the Israelites, they're rejoicing. They just brought the big old rabbits, put God in the box, do, 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 and he's in the camp. What, what are we going to do about that? And on one hand, I think it's really amazing because God's fame and what he's done, his deeds have spread to all the corners of civilization. They know his deeds. They know that this God cares about this people. But what makes the Philistines tremble is they think that God has only just shown up, that he wasn't even there before this moment, that, oh, now God actually showed up. Everyone at this point in the story has misunderstood who God is. And before you judge them for being stupid, you've got to understand, we're all the exact same way. All of us. We all have our, our lucky socks. Well, this makes me do better at work when I wear this. Oh, this outfit, I do much better at work when I'm wearing this, this outfit. Oh, these shoes, these are my, my lucky shoes. This shirt, this pen, if I write notes in this notebook, oh man, I preach so much better if I write notes in this notebook. Oh, these are all rabbit's feet, they're all chai tea. One lonely Philistine stands up in the midst of this bizarre mess and he speaks some words of sanity. Verse 9, he says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So he has this rousing speech. Don't be afraid of God in the box. Just go out there and fight. And they believe this guy and they go and fight. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. And this is where God begins to make the point that people are to trust him and not a box. He's making this point to all of them. Israel is so roundly and soundly defeated that they are demoralized. The the ark that holds the terms of God's covenant is taken captive to the Philistines' homeland. A runner from the battle makes it back into Shiloh, shares what's happening. Everybody starts to wail and complain. and Oh my goodness, I can't believe this has happened. God in the box is gone. We're, We're alone. But as you and I know, they are not alone. They've never been alone. God has never left them. What God does is he's beginning to clean out all the mess and the cobwebs in the house of Israel. The high priest, the one who's supposed to dispel stupid myths like God lives in a box, he dies. The runner comes in. This is what happened. And Eli's like, oh, boom, when he falls off and he breaks his neck. It's kind of funny. I mean, not that he died, but, you know, you read the story. His sons die in, in the midst of this. What God is doing is he is destroying all of their idols, even the idol they made his ark into. And now Samuel is being replaced. Samuel is going to come to the place where he becomes the high priest of Israel to dispel all the myths and show people there's a right way to honor God. See, the, the superstition they have that of the ark runs so deep that Eli's daughter-in-law, the high priest's daughter-in-law, goes into premature labor when she hears about it. And she gives birth to a son. And she gives the son a name that is going to just scar him for the rest of his life. In verse 21 of chapter 4, it says, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured. What she has done is she has confused her personal disaster of losing her husband with and Israel's disaster of losing their army and the ark being captured. She has confused all of that with God's defeat. God has not been defeated. God is never defeated. He is allowing his people to be defeated to help them understand him in a way they would not understand him if this tragedy never happened. God is always about his glory and our good. The name Ichabod in this phrasing means no glory. The ark has come to symbolize the glory of Israel, and now it's gone because God himself wants to be the glory of the nation of Israel, not his box. And it seems like a really dark time for Israel, but I think it's very refreshing that God is not afraid to go in and strip away all the garbage in our lives everything that holds us in bondage. And you have to understand also the story doesn't end right here. Over the next few chapters God begins to show the Philistines that their own gods are nothing. The first thing the Philistines do is they take the ark and they take it to uh, the temple of Dagon who is called the Lord of Gods, okay? And they place in their Dagon to say, "Look, the you know God Israel's God is underneath our god." And so they turn off the light and they go to bed. They wake up the next morning Dagon is down on his face in front of the ark of God's covenant. They're like, this isn't good. So they lift him back up and they put him back up. Everything's good. Boom, they go to bed. They wake up the next morning, walk back in. The Dagon's falling down before the ark again, and his head and his hands are broken off. It's like, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. That's that's what they do right right there. And so God now sets out, and he's going to have a laugh at the Philistines' expense, which I think is really funny. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at him if you want to get mad at somebody, because God is God, and he's he's very funny. Uh, He comes in very hard and heavy. It's the town of Ashod, where the temple of Dagon was. He infects people with what are called tumors. Now, some people have postulated that tumors are boils that come from the bubonic plague, uh, but most scholars believe that tumors is rightly translated as hemorrhoids. God gives the Philistines hemorrhoids. Okay, I don't know if you've ever had the hemorrhoids, but apparently it's not very cool. And people who have the hemorrhoids are like, even if they have them, like, oh, I don't have the hemorrhoids, I don't know what you're talking about, because... It's not something you really want to get, and so God infects them with the hemorrhoids. So the inhabitants of Ashod, they're like, "We just got the hemorrhoids when we brought God's ark here." Well, let's move. It so they send it to Gath. As soon as the ark shows up in Gath, you know what happens? They get the hemorrhoids. It's like, what is going on? You know, what, what's what's going on? So in Gath, they're like, we gotta get rid of this thing. We're gonna send it to Ekron. Ark goes to Ekron. You know What happens in Ekron? They get the hemorrhoids. It's like, what is going on with my butt? And so now for seven months, they're like, we've got to move this ark. Like, oh, we don't want the ark of God. You, you keep the ark. We don't want the ark. I'm itchy. I don't like it. Got to do something. Oh, my goodness. It's great. It is just great. Seven months this goes on. 1 Samuel 6, 2, and 3, they're like, we've got to get rid of the ark of God. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? We hate the hemorrhoids. Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. By all means, return to him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So the Philistines, take such great pleasure and pride in capturing the ark of God, now return to the Israelites. And the way they do this is hilarious. They, they make five gold moldings of their hemorrhoids and five gold moldings of rats because the rats accompany the, the hemorrhoids. And so imagine that, what is this? You don't know what that is? Yeah. is there him rights? oh wow great so they take these mollies they put it all in a cart they drive the they drive the ark back into israelite territory and they just leave it <laughs> just run away it is hilarious it is hilarious so the ark eventually returns to god god gets the israelites some money and he also gets a pretty good laugh in the process and so do we because that, that's funny all right now here's the problem okay the israelites you know are just like us and that we think we have god figured out that, that, you know, we have, do our little ritual and God does what we want. If we pray in Jesus' name, if we have enough faith, if we do, well, then God has to do this. What we do is we treat God like a tenant in a landlord relationship. We say, I paid my rent. God, you have to do this for me because I did what you wanted. We think that is how God works. We do our thing. God does his thing. I'll tell you that God's thing is nothing we could ever figure out. And that is not the relationship is like the relationship with God is like a father and a child. That's what their relationship is like. We don't manipulate him. God is simply good to his people, and he may say yes, or he may say no, but he is always good. So we are just like the Philistines in that we view everything around as the way that we think it should be able to be manipulated by us. We think whatever happens, we should manipulate that and get what we want by our spirituality, by our chance, by our, our luck. But yet, with God being God, there is no luck. There is no chance. There is no coincidence. He is God. He is sovereign. He is uncontrollable. He is freer than you or I. And yet, he is still deeply in love with his people. And yet, we are also like the Israelites in the sense that God has given you and I the terms of our relationship with him. God, our God has given us a covenant that we will be his people and he will be our God. He has promised his spirit to lead us and guide us. He has promised never to leave us, to never forsake us. We are called his bride and he promises to protect us as such. The promises and the covenant that God makes with us gives us purpose and it gives us identity just like it was supposed to do for the Israelite people. The scripture says that God now not, doesn't write his laws on tablets of stone. He writes them on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33, Romans 2, 12 to 16, Isaiah 51, 7. God has written his laws, his covenant on our hearts. In First Corinthians, we are told that we become temples of God's Holy Spirit. That means as he writes it on our heart, what, what makes us sacred is his presence in us. Just like the ark became sacred by the terms of the covenant written and put and placed in it. We are made holy and sacred by God's presence in us as his people because of what he has done in us. And you've got to understand, when we hold on to items, man-made items, and believe these things have power of some sort, we become enslaved to them when we are called to be free. God is the one who holds all things in his hands. Not rabbit's feet, not chai tea, not lucky underwear, not a plastic saint you stick on your dashboard, none of that. Even today, many Christians, they'll take and they'll turn the cross into a lucky charm. Oh, I've got my cross, I'm going to hold it tight, I'm going to pray, I'm going to hold it. You know what? Forgetting that that cross is a symbol of death. Jesus died on a cross. It wasn't that lucky for him. Anything in our lives that we trust more than God is worthless. If you ever find yourself saying, well, that was coincidence. Really? That trumps God's sovereignty? Oh, good luck. Really? You want to go with luck and not with... The God of the universe going with you? Really? Is that what you, I mean, we gotta think about the words that we say and how we look at what God does in our lives. Anything in our lives we trust more than God is worthless. There is no such thing as random chance. So today, you throw away your rabbit's feet, whatever they are. I don't know what, what they are. It could be anything in the world. But you throw them away. And you get up tomorrow and you wear a different pair of underwear. Please. Okay? You, you know, you drink hot chocolate instead of chai tea. You find a different routine. You leave everything that binds you behind. And you walk into the world with grace because you carry within you the covenant of the living God who has saved you and made you sacred and made you holy. And you can trust him because he is that good. Nothing trumps God. Nothing. And so we trust him. Even in things that we don't understand or we don't like, we still trust him because he is good and holy. And everything is sifted through his hands. This is one of the reasons we do communion every single week. Because in communion, we remember that our God is holy. This is one of the ways that he used to write the terms of his covenant on our hearts. By Jesus dying, that's why you break that cracker like his body is broken for us. And you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents his blood that was shed for you and I. Because in this we become a people who have our sins washed away. We are taken into the family of God, and we have His covenant written upon our hearts. And it is amazing. The band's going to come up, and as they do, we invite you guys as a two take communion. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer for anything, maybe you're in a place where you're you know wear the same pair of underwear five days in a row. I don't know. You know, maybe go pray with them, and you know we'll give you a couple of bucks. You can buy a new pair. Uh, and, you know, get rid of whatever binds you and holds you down and keeps you from trusting in the grace and the goodness of who Jesus is. Um, there's offering boxes inside and on in the back, and we give because God has been so good to us. We give in return because generosity is a way that we show that we are not in bondage to our money, because if you want to know something that holds people in bondage, money holds people in bondage, and God calls us people to be a generous people, so we offer the opportunity to give every single week. We don't pass a plate. It's something you got to get up and actually do. You got to in the offering box, uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to get to know some other people if you don't know anybody else, and and you in the community can actually start to call people out on this stuff. Why do you why do you trust in those socks you've worn the last five days rather than trusting in Jesus? You know why do you why do you carry a rabbit split around your pocket? Why do you think that coin's lucky? Why do you think you know all these things? rather than trusting who God is and what he has done and what he continues to do. Let go of everything that holds you in bondage. I mean, this is one of the reasons that Jesus came to show us how to live in relationship with God, our Father. We trust him as a dad. We trust him because he is good, even when we don't understand. Because he is so good. Lay aside everything that hinders. Lay aside. Live and walk in freedom. Let's pray. Father, this morning... I ask that we as your people would be those who stop living in places of bondage. We stop holding on to things that we think give us a favorable result and simply trust in you and what you bring. I ask that you remind us to be a people who constantly lay all things before you. I ask that in the midst of our relationships with people around us, you would have us be like that one lonely Philistine who stood up and said, what is your guys' problem? Don't be so afraid of things that are not in control that we could do that in a godly way and say lay aside all that hinders trust you God that we would be a people who reflect that in all that we do our ultimate faith and trust in who you are that we would live lives that simply state how marvelous and how wonderful you are that our songs of our hearts will ever be how marvelous and how wonderful is our savior who came and died and rose for us so that we can be in your family your covenant written upon our hearts made sacred by virtue of who you are and not what we have done and stop being so caught up in our own bondage that we have placed ourselves in but simply fully trusting and honoring you thank you for saving us thank you for loving us and we lay ourselves before you in your son's good name amen